0: John Calvin once wrote, The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. The gospel is not only good news. The gospel is the greatest news this world never knew it needed. It's the story that answers the most profound questions that have gnawed at the hearts and minds of human beings throughout our history. How did we get here? Why am I here? What happens after this life? Is there a God? And if so, how do I know who he is? Why do bad things happen to good people? What is the meaning of life? Is there absolute truth, objective truth? And if so, how do I know what that is? The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is told and foretold from Genesis to Revelation, answers those questions and many more. fact is, there's no other story like it. In the entire history of the world, there has never been another message with the power to completely transform a human life, let alone families and communities and even entire nations like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is a message, of course, that's been handed down over the centuries through teachers and preachers and missionaries and evangelists and churches. It has been handed down through parents and friends and acquaintances and even total strangers. And all the while revolutionizing countless lives and bringing hope to people in every nation and tribe along the way. The gospel is the most well-traveled and widely disseminated message of all time. And yet before all of that, it was written down by people who had direct interactions, direct revelations from God and with God, including some who lived and ministered with Jesus firsthand during his time on this earth. And it was written down not only to preserve the message, of course, but also to be sure that the message as it was being spread was the same from person to person and church to church and community to community all over the world. Otherwise, uh, right with the passing of time and cultural variations from one place to the next and the differences in worldviews among individuals throughout history, there would be so many inconsistencies in the story of Jesus Christ and what he's done that it would become completely ineffective. I mean, useless, really unable to transform anyone, and unrecognizable as a coherent story if every time you heard the gospel it was a different message depending upon where you were and who you were talking to. Right? The, the gospel of Jesus Christ only works if the message doesn't change. Because if it's different every time you hear it, well then you're building your faith on a shifting foundation, and in, in the end that foundation will crumble beneath you. That's why the gospel was written down largely from people who were either there with Jesus or those who had supernatural interactions with God and his Holy Spirit so that we could all share the same message across time and geography and cultures and communities everywhere we go. And as, as such, there is no equivalent. To the one true unchanging message that has the power to utterly transform the lives of men and women, regardless of their nation, tribe, worldview, culture, or community. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means as a follower of Jesus Christ, this gospel is our message. It is our creed. It is our truth and the reason that we hope. The Apostle Peter, referring to those who are persecuted for sharing the gospel, said, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter three fourteen and 15. So as followers of Christ we're not only the recipients of this good news that is the gospel message, but we are also the keepers of the message. It is our responsibility to both share it and defend it wherever we go, which means as Christians, of course, we really shouldn't be confused at all about the actual content of the message, right? Particularly in an environment which is potentially hostile to the gospel as our culture is increasingly becoming, and yet I'm not aware Of any other time, at least in my lifetime, when there were so many people, I'm talking about professing Christians, who seemed to be just that, confused about the actual content of the gospel of Jesus Christ, although as we'll see, apparently a confusion about the gospel is nothing new because it was a big part of the reason that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, which we're going to be working through uh, in this next sermon series that we're starting today. You see, Paul wanted to take the gospel to Spain and much like uh, Antioch had been his home base in the east, he thought that Rome would make a good launching point for a westward mission, which we'll learn later in chapter 15. But more than that, Paul had an overwhelming desire to promote unity between the believers in Jesus who were Jewish and those who were not Jewish, or those Gentiles. And because the Roman uh, church was a mix of Jews and Gentiles, Paul was determined to communicate to these Christians that the gospel includes everyone because there was a lot of confusion at the time about that. It was Paul's desire to communicate the gospel to the people in Rome with a clarity and conviction that was missing among the believers there at the time. And yet, uh, just as the Holy Spirit warned Paul about the peril awaiting him in Jerusalem in Acts 21? Of course, what if he were unable to make it to Rome? And he expresses that concern in the letter. Okay, Paul understood better than anyone the uncertainty of his own ability to travel and spread the gospel based on his 20 plus years of ministry to date and all the impediments that he experienced along the way up to this point. And yet Rome was the epicenter of the powerful Roman Empire, which ruled over many of the great ancient centers of Western civilization. And so Paul was determined, one way or the other, to get the gospel to Rome. So he decides to write a letter that is so comprehensive that Rome would hear the gospel preached, even if Paul himself were not able to go there personally. And because of all that, Romans is a very different letter than all of Paul's other letters to the churches, which focus more on the local church and its challenges and problems. In contrast to Romans, which focuses on the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's great plan of redemption for the world. And because of the comprehensive nature of the letter and the sheer clarity and conviction of the gospel expressed within it, Romans has no equal. It is widely regarded not only as Paul's greatest work, but it is considered by most scholars as the Mount Everest of biblical theology. Martin Luther said Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel, the absolute epitome of the gospel. Luther's successor, Philip Melanchthon, called Romans the compendium of Christian doctrine. John Calvin said, the book of Romans, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. English poet and literary critic Samuel Coleridge said, Paul's letter to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. Frederick Gaudet, 19th century Swiss theologian, called the book of Romans the cathedral of the Christian faith. British evangelist, preacher, and author uh, G. Campbell Morgan said Romans was the most pessimistic page of literature upon which your eyes ever rested and at the same time the most optimistic poem to which your ears ever listened. While Bible scholar and author Richard Lenski wrote that the book of Romans is beyond question the most dynamic of all New Testament letters even as it was written at the climax of Paul's apostolic career. Okay, in all of biblical scripture. The letter to the Romans has no equal. And so it is for the purpose that Paul wrote it that we are going to read it and study it together so that there will be no question remaining in our own hearts and minds as to what exactly comprises this most important message that the world never knew it needed, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is for the sake of the gospel, as we'll see today, that we've been called out by God set apart unashamedly in service to the message of Christ. Why? So there won't be any more confusion about what the message is and what it means for the people who hear it. Okay, If if you're a follower of Christ, that's our job. That is our mandate from God for the church to be the one Place on earth where people know they can find the answers to life's biggest questions. The unchanging truth of the gospel. And when I say the one place on earth, by the way, I'm referring to wherever you happen to be. Because this building isn't the church, right? You are the church. And so it is your responsibility to not be confused about the message. As the church, it's your responsibility to carry this gospel into the world with clarity and conviction. So let's jump into this letter together, Romans chapter 1, and see what Paul has to say about what life looks like when you live it for the sake of the gospel. We'll begin with the first seven verses. Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son and the Lord Jesus Christ. Writing from Corinth on his third missionary journey, this again is a solid 20 years into his ministry, Paul is now uniquely equipped to share the gospel with the Jews and with the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, because in addition uh, to, of course, being an expert in Jewish law, right? Paul Paul was taught and mentored by the great Jewish rabbi Gamaliel himself. Paul was also a Roman citizen, though, who grew up in Tarsus. It was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire where he was exposed to Greco-Roman customs and religions and philosophies. And in the process, he became fluent in Greek as well. And the fact that he was versed in Greek philosophy is attested to by his numerous quotations throughout the New Testament of famous Greek thinkers like Aratus in Acts 17:28 and Menander in 1 Corinthians 15:33 and Epimenides in Titus 1:12 and so right from the start of this letter he not only summarizes the entire gospel in his salutation his introduction tying the Old Testament scriptures to the gospel But he's careful to include both Jews and Gentiles as its intended recipients. Not just the letter, but the gospel itself. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God. You understand, these are statements concerning the Old Testament that that connect uh, would have connected specifically with the Jewish audience, including uh, the phrase Son of God, which was the Jewish title for Messiah. So they understood exactly what he was saying. And yet at the same time, Paul talks about Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, meaning Jews and the Gentiles, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ to all those in Rome who are loved and called by God to be saints this is an incredibly inclusive statement written to Jews and Gentiles that would have both shocked and commanded the attention of Jews and Gentiles alike and and indeed it did okay in fact Uh, Romans became such a profoundly important letter to the Christians in Rome, it's widely accepted that the letter was read in every meeting of the Roman church. Every time they got together, they read this letter. Furthermore, there was an edited version of it without the personal references in chapter 16 that was widely distributed among the early churches as a summary, a synopsis of the apostolic doctrine of the gospel. The entire message about Jesus Christ and how Christ's saving activity transforms all of life and all of history. This was a handbook for the early church. And yet again, just in these first seven verses of the letter, we find an entire, albeit abbreviated, gospel presentation. It's breathtaking. In verses two and three, he says that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy that a descendant of David would forever rule, and therefore he is the Messiah. In verse 4 he says, Jesus was declared by God the Father to be the Son of God in power when he was raised from the dead. So this Jesus who was crucified, raised from the dead after three days, that was the claim. It took place uh, at God's right hand as the Messianic King, the eternal Son of God who has reigned forever with the Father and the Holy Spirit. These are heady comments, especially to a group of Jews. In verse five, he says, the goal is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. And the word name here, onama in the ancient Greek means reputation or honor. So the purpose of this gospel message is to bring people to faith in Christ that he may be glorified. And in verse seven, he says, this message is to all those in Rome, by the way, called to be saints. All believers, not just The Jewish believers, and of course he starts it all off by saying this is what we as believers have been set apart for. We've been set apart for this gospel. A few weeks ago we worked through Paul's letter to Titus where we talked about the fact that as uh, Christians we're called out by God to be set apart, to be different. And of course the next logical question is set apart for what? Well this is what Paul is answering here and as believers and followers of Christ, uh, listen, No matter your station in life, no matter your background, ethnicity, life experience, qualifications, or lack of them. No matter who you are or where you come from, if you are a believer and follower of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, you have been set apart for the gospel. And Yet, I don't think we always seem to get that. The fact that there's a primacy to the gospel above all else in our lives, that the gospel is to take priority over every other concern in our entire lives. Listen, from the mundane to the monumental, the first and most important question we should be asking in every decision we ever have to make is how will this decision affect the message of the gospel going into and coming out of my life? Because that is the primary purpose of our existence. It's why we're here. Listen, we're not here to make the most out of our life on this earth. We're here to make the most out of his life on this earth by reflecting Jesus Christ and his gospel in our own lives. The fact is, our biggest problem isn't actually what's happening in the world today. As crazy as everything is that's happening in our world today, our culture today, that's not our biggest problem. No, our biggest problem is actually what's happening in the church today. The fact that Christians are by and large more concerned and preoccupied with this world than they are with the gospel. So look, just honestly ask yourself more than you concern yourself with politics, more than you concern yourself with social media, more than you concern yourself with today's headlines, more than you concern yourself with whatever is popular, more than you concern yourself with any other message in the world today, do you concern yourself with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Okay, it's not that those other messages don't matter. It's just that the gospel matters more. It's not that we don't need to answer the the answers to the problems that are ailing this world. It's that the gospel is the answer to what ails this world. It's not that we shouldn't be engaged in those conversations. It's that the gospel is how we engage in those conversations. Because the gospel points people to Jesus Christ. And so if we've been set apart for the gospel, then our lives and our speech should also point people to Jesus Christ. I've said it before. The gospel message is subversive to the message of this world. Okay? The way the gospel defines truth and beauty and goodness, as author Michael Bruner puts it, is antithetical to the way the world defines truth and beauty and goodness. The gospel message is subversive to the message of this world. That's why it's rejected by the world. If the gospel was uh, innocuous, right, harmless, if it was tame, then no one would care. Because the the gospel message is a subversive message. Sharing the gospel then becomes a subversive act. And you better believe people are going to care when you challenge the very core of what they believe about truth and beauty and goodness with with the message of the gospel. Uh, And yet again, that's actually not the problem. The fact that our culture is opposed to our message is not the problem. The problem is when we profess to be followers of Christ and no one ever opposes our message. That's the problem, because that's usually a sure sign that we have actually neglected the gospel, that our faith has become idle and we're drifting away from the profoundly provocative truth of this message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to the earth in the form of a man, born of a virgin, was crucified for our sins, rose from the dead and ascended to the Father, which means the only access that anyone can ever have to God is through Jesus Christ by His grace through our faith when we repent of our sin and turn our lives over to him. Jesus was crystal clear on the message. There is no other way for you to be saved, to get to heaven, to know God. It's a very clear and convicting message and yet the taming of it, the watering down of this gospel has become a plague in the American church today. In Hebrews 2, 1 and 3, uh, the author warns us against neglecting the message given to us by Jesus Christ, the gospel. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And the word neglect there, by the way, in the Greek is the word amaleo. It means to be careless of, or more specifically, it means to make light of. So neglecting the gospel message isn't just a matter of not spending enough time in God's word. It's also a matter of trying to make the message something less than it actually is, to make light of it. Why would we do that? Because in in honesty, we'd rather adjust the word of God according to the way we live instead of adjusting the way we live according to the word of God. I mean, right? I mean, it's much easier for me to make the word fit my own lifestyle than it is to have to change my life to fit the word of God. And so look, when you share the truth of the gospel with an unbeliever, Typically, they'll react one of two ways. Either they'll move toward it or they'll move away from it. But rarely will they remain indifferent unless you have made light of it. Unless you're sharing a message that actually challenges no one. Because it's easy to be indifferent about a message that has no real impact on our lives or the way we see the world, right? I mean, who cares if it doesn't challenge the way I'm living? Believe what you want to believe. In fact, the group of people who tend to be the most indifferent about the gospel message, at least in my own experience, is Christians who have made light of the gospel. It's as if we see the gospel as something that has been set apart for us rather than seeing ourselves as being set apart for the gospel, which is a critical error. Okay, When Paul introduces himself as a servant of Christ Jesus in verse 1, the word servant He could have used a different word, but the word that he chooses to use to describe himself is the word doulos in the Greek, which literally means a slave. Paul says, literally, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I've been set apart in servitude to this gospel. It owns me. It's not the other way around. The gospel has not been set apart for us. We have been set apart for it. We belong to it. And as such, it is to take priority over every other concern in our lives. Look, that means whatever we need to adjust in our lives, whatever changes we need to make, whatever sacrifices we need to accept to give the gospel the primacy in our lives that it demands, then so be it, because that's what we've been set apart for, for the sake of the gospel coming into and going out of our lives the unadulterated, unwatered-down gospel. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung said, this world needs to see Christians burning, not with self-righteous fury at the sliding morals in our country, but with a passion for God. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So not not only does Paul say I'm set apart for the gospel, but here in verse 9, he alludes to the fact that he lives his life in service to the gospel. And then he spends the next six verses or so describing what that looks like. By the way, the word serve uh, in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the Greek word latruo, which is used to describe uh, Israel's priestly service to Yahweh in Exodus 25 and also Deuteronomy 5.9. It's the same word that Paul uses here. Because he actually considers service in the gospel ministry to be equal to Israel's service to Yahweh. These are provocative, subversive statements to the Jews. He also uses the term to describe uh, the Gentile service to God in Romans 12.1. So nobody gets left out. Okay? That's how important living out the gospel is to Paul. And so he says, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Okay, a life in service to the gospel is a life spent lifting one another up in prayer. And yet it's more than that. There's a genuine longing to be together with his fellow believers. I can relate to Paul. I know what it feels like to be apart from my family and want so desperately to be with you. And he expresses that to to them. He says, I want to be with you, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you for I long to see you. But then he takes it a step further because Paul's desire to be together with the church is more than just for fellowship. It's that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And that phrase, to strengthen you, stay right so, in the Greek means to be established, it means to make someone more resolved in their belief. So Paul's talking about more than just sharing a great sermon. Okay, or, or holding a, a really wonderful prayer meeting or working some kind of miracles among them. He's talking about establishing them so securely in their faith that they would grow in maturity until full conformity into the image of Christ. Okay, Paul's self-described service to the gospel is really the essence of discipleship. It's not just a great Sunday morning service or a really good church program. No, he's talking about living out the gospel together. It's what Eugene Peterson refers to as a long obedience in the same direction. This is what it looks like to live your life in service to the gospel. It's the long game. It's doing life with each other so deeply committed to one another that we don't cut ties and run the moment there's a disagreement. We don't write each other off when we don't see eye to eye. Even when it comes to important issues, because as important as those issues may be, listen, the gospel is more important. Our relationships between one another and service to the gospel take precedence over our preferences and opinions concerning non-gospel related issues. That's why we don't sever relationships with each other over turmoil that's happening in our world. Or at least we're not supposed to. On the contrary, Paul says we should be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. It's a two-way street because when you live your life in service to the gospel, according to Paul, you are under an obligation, as Paul describes it, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager, he says, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I mean, as divided as our society is today, We have no idea how it was in Rome in the first century. You want to talk about divided? It couldn't have been any more divided. They were burning Christians at the stake. It was a divided society, more than anything we can even fathom. And yet Paul says this message is for all of you. Greeks and barbarians, the wise, the foolish I'm eager to preach the gospel among all of you in Rome. In other words, there's plenty to distract us from the task at hand. There always has been and there always will be more than enough going on in the world around us to distract us from the purpose we've been set apart for, living our lives in service to the gospel. So don't give in to the distractions. Don't get hung up on something that you feel is really important to the point that you completely miss out on what is most important. Because listen, you you haven't been set apart in service to a political party. You know that, right? You haven't been set apart in service to a social movement. You haven't been set apart in service to this world. No, you have been set apart in service to the gospel. So don't allow any of those other things to dictate the status of your relationships because you don't serve the world's agenda. You serve a gospel agenda, which is all about relationships and not just relationships with the people you agree with. Paul said, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. You haven't just been called to be in relationship with the parts of the body you prefer. Sorry. You've been called into relationship with all of God's people. Like it or not, that's what it looks like to live your life in service to the gospel. Okay, of all people, we, the people of God, we cannot afford to be so small minded that we're only willing to be in relationship with the parts of the body that are just like us. I mean, if that's the case, we need to get over ourselves. Because living your life in service to the gospel means living your life in service to God's people, all of them. Is that easy to do? Of course it's not easy to do. The fact is, there isn't one person in all of biblical scripture or among the great men and women of the faith since, for that matter, who found following God to be easy. So why do we think it should be easy for us? Why do we immediately back away from relationships with other people the moment we're met with the slightest resistance, the first sign of disagreement? Is that because we don't like making other people feel uncomfortable or is it because we don't like making ourselves uncomfortable? Because living your life in service to the gospel is going to make you uncomfortable at times and that extends beyond just your relationships, by the way. It touches every area of your life. Right? Why are we happy to give out of our abundance but not so much out of our need? Are we trusting in God or are we trusting in our income? Why are we willing to take risks for something we want but not for something God wants? I mean, Who are we actually living for, Him or ourselves? You see, the truth is in our culture today, including our church culture, we are obsessed with comfort and security and prosperity despite the fact that Jesus flatly rejected all of that. In fact, he consistently led his disciples into a completely different way of living, one that was so deeply and radically committed to the gospel that no sacrifice, no risk, no cost, no discomfort, no amount of humility was too great. Now just think about that for a minute and then be honest with yourself. Are you actually willing, for the sake of the gospel, are you willing to sacrifice everything that you have? Would you literally risk it all? Are you prepared to give up all that you have in service to the gospel if that's what Christ called you to do? And before you say yes to that, it's important you understand something. It's important for you to understand that that is in fact exactly what he's calling you to do. Okay, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, everything that you have, including and especially yourself, belongs to Him, not you. Your money, your time, Your abilities, your possessions, your schedule, your marriage, your kids, your heart, your mind, your intellect, your aspirations, your plans, your pride, your desperate need to be right. Every single part of your life belongs to Christ now. Every bit of it is his, listen, to do with what he pleases. The Apostle Paul said it this way. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for what? For his good pleasure to do with whatever he pleases. Philippians 2.13, because you're not your own. You're bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Think about that. If you're a Christ follower, your life, all that you are, everything that you have, every bit of it, it all belongs to him. He owns you. And here's why that's not just a theological concept that we agree with in church, because when you come to truly accept that everything you have And all that you are is not yours, but it's actually his. When you finally accept that, it will utterly transform the way that you live your life on a daily basis, just like it did for Paul. Because look, it's far simpler to lay down what you have no claim to, right? To risk what isn't yours, to give away what doesn't belong to you in the first place. I mean, right, if it's not yours, it's really easy to give it away. I've shared this analogy with you before. If someone handed you, handed you $1,000 here in church, the person next to you uh, or the person behind you or in front of you turned around and handed you $1,000 and said, hey, can you please put this in the offering for me uh, later on? Or can you please give it to that person over there because I know they need it? Well, you wouldn't think twice about doing what they ask you to do. Why? Because that's not your money. You're just handling it for someone else. But to take $1,000 out of your own wallet, out of your own checking account, okay, that's something altogether different. Why? Because that's mine. See the difference, right? We say it all belongs to Jesus until he tells us to give it all away. We're not just talking about money here. We're talking about everything. When that person hands you that $1,000 and tells you what to do with it, you have absolutely no right to do anything other than exactly what they ask you to do with it. Why? Because you have no claim to that money. You're getting the picture. Everything you have, including your own life, was handed to you by God. Every single moment of every single day, he's telling you what to do with every single bit of it, which means you have absolutely no right to do anything with it other than exactly what he's asked you to do with it because you have no claim to any of it. You're simply handling it for him. That means the breath in your lungs belongs to him. The blood in your veins belongs to him. The beating of your heart belongs to him. The plans you make belong to him. The possessions you have belong to him. Every thought, every intention, every motive, every aspect of your life and your life itself belongs to him. Which means every time you try to keep what you have from God or from doing what he's instructed you to do with it, it's the same as taking that $1,000 from that person who asked you to give it away and instead you put it in your pocket and you walk away. I mean, that that sounds ridiculous because we wouldn't do that to someone else except for the fact that many of us do exactly that to God every day. Okay, for the sake of the gospel, we've been set apart for the gospel. To live our lives in service to the gospel. Which is going to require you to give all that you have. Richard Bronstein once said, It is possible to give without loving But it is impossible to love without giving. Let's finish our story for today. Verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul finishes his initial summation of the gospel, which explains why he's so eager to preach it to everyone he can, because he says it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he ends the thought with the righteous shall live by faith, which is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. In other words, he's just driving the point home to his Jewish friends. And then he ends the thought uh, uh, there with the, the quote from Habakkuk 2.4. Now, listen, Rome in the first century, uh, Rome was not a friendly place. To Christians, okay? The church at this point was an obscure, unwanted blot on an otherwise glorious society as far as the government and most of its citizens were concerned. And because of that, there was a temptation to be ashamed, to hide their affiliation with the gospel. It was a very real problem with the church there at the time. But Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because, again, he says it's the very power of God. And like Paul, we've been set apart for the gospel called to live our lives in service to the gospel, not ashamed of the gospel. The late first century, early second century Roman historian and Senator Tacitus wrote a collection of books titled Annals, which chronicle the early Roman Empire. And in book number 15 of that collection, he describes the Roman emperor Nero's persecution of Christians in the first century. This is what he wrote. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and torn to death by dogs, or nailed to crosses, or set fire to, and when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. He goes on to explain that they were tied to stakes in Nero's garden and lit on fire to light the garden while Nero was entertaining his guests. Many other Christians were taken. ...to the Colosseum in Rome in front of crowds thirsty for blood sport... ...and they were strapped to hot iron chairs which would sear through their flesh... ...and then they were made to run through a gauntlet of wild animals in cages... ...where the animals were close enough to reach through the bars... ...and tear at the believers' bodies. And all the while, all that these Christians had to do to be spared this torture... ...was to recant their faith in Christ... And yet one after another after another after another after another. They willingly accepted the most horrendous torture and death because renouncing their faith in Jesus was even more unthinkable than the torture they knew they were about to endure. One of those was a pastor from Antioch and a disciple of the Apostle John. He was a man named Ignatius who upon being condemned to death in Rome around AD 110 just before being led to the Colosseum to his death knowing he would be facing either death by burning or crucifixion or by wild animal he wrote this in a letter to one of his friends. I'm quoting, it is not that I want merely to be called a Christian but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one by being faithful to the end, then I can have the name. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus Christ. In those early years of the church, you were either all in, or you were not in at all. Those early believers were entirely committed to serving Jesus faithfully or to die trying, and in fact, most of them did both. The Christians in the early church were not afforded the luxury of a faith that cost them nothing. For them, it cost everything. Yet the alternative was unthinkable. Abandoning the faith was not an option. In the very same way, you, have been set apart for the gospel in service to the gospel. The question is, what are you willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? What are you willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? Fire? Cross? battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of your whole body, cruel tortures of the devil? Or how about loving people who don't agree with you? How about spending all your time on social media talking about Jesus instead of the turmoil in our culture? How about swallowing your pride for the sake of building someone else up instead of tearing them down? How about loving someone into the kingdom by unashamedly sharing the gospel with them, even when you'd rather talk about anything else? Because you've been set apart for the gospel, not for anything else. To live your life unashamedly in service to the gospel, to spread this message with clarity and conviction, the greatest message this world never knew it needed. Of course, that isn't always going to be easy because sometimes the world gets in the way. Sometimes people don't make it easy. Sometimes it's going to cost you to live that way. And that's when you have to answer the question, What am I willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? Let's pray.